0: In the 10 months that I've been on my current job, no one has been a wiser counselor or stauncher ally than Yoram. Very few political movements are blessed with leaders as principled, clear-eyed, and public-spirited. And thank you to one of my other new friends, one of my first visitors at Heritage, our mutual friend, Chris DeMuth, who was the first to encourage me to give national conservatism a chance. Chris. He was right. Very few political movements have as historic a legacy to secure as yours. And I'm proud today to also say as ours. For I come to this convention as president of the Heritage Foundation to extend my gratitude for the ideas and energy national conservatives have injected into the national debate and my fellowship with the principles you have advanced to rescue America from the barbarians inside the gates of our very own institutions. I come not to invite national conservatives to join our conservative movement, but to acknowledge the plain truth that heritage is already part of yours. What's that cause? Our recent explication or one recent explication you might have seen, you might have even signed, called for, quote, restoring to our nation a proper public orientation toward the virtues of patriotism and courage, honor and loyalty, religion and wisdom, congregation and family, man and woman, the Sabbath and the sacred, and reason and justice. A much older rendering commands us to tend and keep the garden from those who would be as gods, Today, our garden, our homes and families, our nation, the West, is besieged by three mortal threats. The Stalinist cult of wokeism, the Chinese Communist Party's genocidal regime in Beijing, and the globalist technocratic elite that profits off both by surveilling, deplatforming, and dehumanizing anyone who resists their Pharisaic tyranny. Perhaps the only thing more alarming than the strength these three storms have gathered in recent years has been the weakness of our civilizational bulwarks arrayed athwart them. Political, cultural, and economic institutions built up over centuries have fallen one by one like dry leaves from dying branches. Then again, that's what happens when roots are severed. As with trees, the real damage done to America's public institutions came not from the wind from without, but from the rot within. The tragedy of our universities, the stratification of our economy, the gelding of Congress, the farce of our news media, the weaponization of government against its people and of popular culture against their values. These were all inside jobs, as was the betrayal of the Republican Party, of the families, community, and nation it exists to serve. Some might soften that indictment and accuse the GOP of only blindness or miscalculation. But if anything, the charge is too gentle. After all, no one expected academia, corporate boards, or the legacy media to defend our nation. The GOP, however, was supposed to be different. They were supposed to stand with us, protect us, and fight for us, and they didn't. Conservatives warned Republican leaders not to trade with China or ignore border security. We warned them, including once again just in the last few weeks, not to abandon unborn children or marriage between one man and one woman. We warned them about big banks, big tech, pornography, opioids, fatherlessness, the failure of public schools, surveillance, and censorship on social media. Instead, they nuked the economy, grew government, and lost wars. Washington Republicans may not have affirmatively created all the problems eroding economic opportunity and social solidarity but nor have they prioritized correcting any of them. And now, when the country needs leaders more than ever to stand and fight, few of them have answered the bell. So now, national conservatives, that is to say, we, must. So doing requires us to appreciate our own history, especially our nation's founding. The American Revolution was that rare thing in history, something new under the sun. A people with a distinctive identity, philosophy, and genius charted a new path together. It's that last word together that does so much of the work explaining the American experiment. America is famous for its can-do optimism and gritty individualism, but as Tocqueville noticed, The more salient resource was the families, communities, and associations that cultivated and harvested those virtues. It's why, despite our regional and cultural diversity, America has always been the most patriotic nation on earth. Here, we give everyone a chance to become the best version of himself, and yet that idea has been under assault for nearly a century when Woodrow Wilson and his technocratic elitist movement was ascendant. Tellingly, both for understanding his program and those it spawned, Wilson also hated the separation of powers, federalism, the Bill of Rights, checks and balances, property rights, human rights, and yes, dissent. He didn't believe the United States of America belonged to the American people, but that both rightfully belonged to enlightened, credentialed, lily white fops, like himself, anointed by history to lift mankind out of his selfish provincial faiths, hopes, and loves. Thankfully, the difference between America, then and now, is that Wilson's radicalism crashed against the rocks of our public institutions. The Senate rejected the Treaty of Versailles, and then the American people rejected Wilsonianism at home and abroad. Even after the next era of progressive zeal under Franklin Roosevelt, the American people happily settled into our zenith of patriotism, family cohesion, and social solidarity. The values of the American Revolution, of the founding and the people, endured. It was only then that the left began its long march through the institutions, from faculty lounges, to newsrooms, to the US Foreign Service, to the church and corporate HR departments. Just about every large institution in America has been decaying ever since. For two generations now, and with a few happy interruptions, America's elite institutions have grown dysfunctional, even toxic and incompetent in every task but their leaders' enrichment. In, in hindsight, we now recognize that while the end of the Cold War marked a historic victory over totalitarianism, that very same cancer was metastasizing throughout our own country. Even the New York Times in 1989 ran a story about the irony of Marxism being overthrown in Eastern Europe while it was taking over our college campuses. The more recent history of America's decadent elite, many of us are old enough to remember. Educational decline, Trade deals with Mexico and China that exported our jobs instead of our values. Catastrophic intelligence and military failures. Greed-inflated bubbles in the tech and housing sectors. A global financial meltdown. Unchecked illegal immigration. Family breakdown. Screen addiction. The retreat from religion. The subordination of even science and medicine to ideological fan fiction. And upstream of all of that, a continuously declining national birth rate that imperils the future of our civilization. Some libertarian friends will object to the injustice or inefficiency of inserting moralizing government into the free market. To which I say, what free market? Internet search, advertising and video sharing are as monopolistic as government itself. Social media is an oligarchy that pays tribute to the CCP. Voluntary exchange and market pricing are two of the best known ways to lift mankind out of poverty. But we learned in the last few decades of trade with China, a police state can use trade not to expand freedom for its people, but to secure its hold on power. Milton Friedman was right. People should be free to choose. But truly free people put their culture their families, and their national survival ahead of the GDP. Throughout this era, the West's forgotten families, abandoned by the corporate right and the elite left, pushed back. Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot, the Tea Party, the Brexit movement, and of course, Donald Trump, all made the same point. America's working families were not sharing globalism's fruits. They were being left behind and exploited by privileged leaders who should have been looking out for them. And all along, leaders in Beijing, Moscow, Tehran, and on college campuses continually tested the new soulless West's resolve and found it pliable. That's where I come in. Trust me, I'd rather not talk about myself. But many of you over the last several months have persistently asked what kind of conservative I am, and what motivates me. You've told me that you see in the new heritage a shift, one in the direction of national conservatism, but that you don't yet know me. So allow me briefly to acquiesce to your curiosity. My worldview, my conservatism was forged in childhood. I grew up in a poor family, very poor, and besieged by the early signs of our nation's social decay. When I read Hillbilly Elegy, for example, I immediately felt a personal connection to J.D. Vance. My parents divorced when I was four, the pervasive substance abuse around me, and the simultaneous collapse of my hometown's oil and gas economy created an instability in my family that persisted for a decade. Amid that, the tragic rotten fruit of those scourges was my teenage brother's suicide. I was nine. In those five years, One might say I got a preview of America's 21st century social disintegration, a topic that I know well and not merely as an academic. But I had something in the 1980s that fewer and fewer Americans today possess, faith. In particular, the faith of my forebears, nurtured in their own tortuous voyage from Nova Scotia to Louisiana in the 1780s, impelled to do so, because they dare remain Catholic, rather than bend the knee, literally, to an integrated church and state regime in Britain. And yet in their crucible, they forged a rock ribbed commitment to truth, a deep love of the Virgin Mary, and building institutions intricately tied to family, community, and the purest of free markets, what Rocky would call a humane economy. Not surprisingly, Given the social capital of these pockets of South Louisiana, there is a natural hostility there to centralized power, especially one that unites big business, big government, and big church. That's why in 1992, as a high school senior, I volunteered for Pat Buchanan's insurgent presidential campaign. In fact, my earliest political achievement, if you will, was helping to organize one of the largest rallies of his campaign. There on a characteristically humid evening on the banks of Bayou Vermilion in my hometown of Lafayette, Louisiana, Buchanan delivered a prescient warning about the demise of our institutions, our patriotism, and our faith. I remember vividly the crowd interrupting Buchanan repeatedly, their raucous applause animated by the relief that someone finally understood their plight, our plight as Americans. You might say that my people knew what time it was in America before most even knew the clock was ticking. My own career reflects the same urgency of leaning into and even starting institutions that fight Leviathan. It's why 15 years ago I founded a Catholic school rooted in the intellectual tradition of the West and animated by a joyful Catholic identity. The wonderful fruit of that school isn't just the several alumni who've been ordained priests or the many married couples who first met in grade school there or the perpetual adoration chapel running continuously for over a decade, but that it is seen by everyone in that region as a bulwark against all the assaults from the broader culture against truth. Similarly, when I became the second president of Wyoming Catholic College, I thought it a no-brainer to lead that institution in rejecting federal student loans and grants. (laughs) Denigrated by the New York Times as a cowboy Catholic, a charge I will forever sport with pride. (laughs) This decision was rooted in my understanding a decade ago that transgender ideology would eventually corrode any institution foolish enough to be tied to the central government. I am sorry to have been correct. Nevertheless, that stance for our cash-strapped, upstart college meant working that much harder to raise funds, a reality that Tucker Carlson, then a Fox News weekend anchor interviewing me early on a Saturday morning, explained as, quote, the price of principal. Consequently, I see my role at the Heritage Foundation as a continuation of its and my own work. To be sure, my upbringing in a culture that values passion and populism causes me occasionally to overstate my disdain for centralized power. Sometimes I even do that on Twitter. What can I say? Original sin is a powerful thing. But it's not because I'm a knee-jerk free marketeer, as you now understand. I can only hope and pray that explaining more about my own background as a conservative helps to elevate all our discourse. The stakes are too high not to. Some see this fight as being beyond the means of conventional constitutional, what they would call liberal politics. They don't seek simply a reintroduction of faith in the public square as we had for most of our history. They think the only solution to wokeism is to subordinate the state to an institutional church. I don't. Neither in the United States where this brand of conservatism is alien, nor even on the continent where it is historically familiar does this theocratic vision square with any conservative reading of history. Indeed, the religious institution that most illiberal thinkers would have us model, my own church, spent these last few decadent decades perpetrating and covering up a massive global child sex abuse scandal. Integralists heal thyself. As a devout, patriotic Catholic, and all the more patriotic about this Protestant country for my Catholicism, I know for a fact that America and the Roman Catholic Church would both be strategically weakened, politically discredited, and morally corrupted by a fusion of church and state. (laughs) Permit me, therefore, to address Catholic integralism as a Catholic and on Catholic theological grounds. Though I share much of the same frustrations with American society and politics as the leading figures of that movement, and I certainly rejoice in their religious conversion, I'm afraid their zeal for fixing those massive problems has led them into error. Given the religious diversity of our audience this morning, I'll be brief here. The crux of the problem with Catholic integralism is that it crowds out, if not completely undermines, the most essential part of a Catholic's path to eternal salvation. Free will. Yes, for our non-Catholic friends, this is as important as the Virgin Mary, the communion of saints, and even the real presence. In the sense that in exercising our free will prudently, we do the hard work, excruciatingly hard, of building the city of man in the image of God. John Paul II explained this well. He wrote, The exercise of dominion over the world represents a great and responsible task for man, one which involves his freedom and obedience to the Creator's command, fill the earth and subdue it. In view of this, a rightful autonomy, he continued, is due to every man as well as to the human community. John Paul's statement, so consistently echoed throughout church teaching and evidenced by the church's own sordid history with integrating church and state reveals the error. But what I plead for is not gratuitous rhetoric on Twitter, but a real conversation, a conversation as friends, a conversation as family members, a conversation in the same room. The stakes are too high not to. I believe that we have the opportunity in front of us to cohere a new, bright, powerful, and fruitful conservative movement. Your presence here, your participation, in all of your various organizations gives me great hope for that. And yet we know the clock is ticking. So I've come to NatCon today for the same reason I was hired by my board last year to build a new heritage, not just a stronger, sharper think tank, but a new patrimony of faith, freedom, and country that we all can pass on to our children. What our nation needs now, from national conservatives and every conservative, is nothing less than a second American Revolution, a reaffirmation of the values and the people that made America in the first place. That effort needs to be in every arena of the public square, in every state and town, and in every institution. The needs are great enough, and this movement is broad enough, for all of us to work together in spite of whatever differences and priorities we have. The key to that is, as our friend Yoram reminds us, to rediscover conservatism. And rediscover we must, for the next war is already on our shores, in our schools, on our screens, in our government, and at our throats. Our job is to rebuild our shining city on a hill by building dozens, hundreds, and eventually thousands of little cities on every hill. The platoons and institutions that, just like they're upending in 1776, can today revitalize this great land. So I close with a question. What time is it in America? It's time to work together. And it sure is hell time to fight, just like it's always been. I look forward to charging hills with you shoulder to shoulder for many years to come. God bless you.